positive thinking. Think and grow rich. The richest man in Babylon. Prosperity theology. Name it and claim it. The money gospel. Manifesting your destiny. The secret to scriptural financial success. The mental cure. All of these are famous books and ideas that really define a moment in America that swept the nation in the 19th and early 20th centuries. It was a time when Americans became infatuated with their own potential. A nation born from liberty somehow became a nation born to pursue self-help and personal gain above all else. Utopia no longer seemed like a distant idea. It felt like a tangible reality only inches from mankind's reach. But this thinking didn't come out of nowhere. America owes many of these wild and messy ideas to an earlier movement that contributed to their rise. Before Norman Vincent Peale, before Ralph Waldo Treen, before Dale Carnegie, before Napoleon Hill, before Stephen Covey, long before A.A. A. Allen and Oral Roberts and Kenneth Copeland, before prayer cloths and self-help and winning the war in your mind and all of this, there was a little something called the New Thought Movement. Hey there, my friend. Welcome to the Joey Bolognon Podcast. The 19th century was truly one of the most life-altering eras in America because it laid the foundation for tons of spiritual and mental self-help practices that are still used today. By the time we reach the 20th century, we are being introduced to a brand new way of thinking about the supernatural world and how we interact with it. People coined many terms during this time. Terms like mind cure, or positive thinking, or success literature. Now, in America specifically, there was already a giant shift off of groups and a stronger focus on individualism, especially after the Civil War. Because even though slavery was abolished and black people were still far and wide mistreated and deprived of equal opportunity, questions were arising as to the power of a person's ability to create their own success. The country became fascinated with this question. What kind of hidden power lives in the individual mind? The era immediately following the Civil War is referred to as the Gilded Age, and one of the reasons for this is because Americans became obsessed with the notion of progress. Many believed that we were entering a time where we could perfect the human race. This is actually the root origins of a political movement uh, referred to as progressivism. Now, some of you listening right away, you're going to think of the Aryan race and Nazi Germany, right? The tyrannical attempt to eradicate races and purify humanity uh, genetically via eugenics. And that mindset was growing too, 
The idea of human perfection took many forms in America, and eugenics was soon to follow, but people sometimes fail to realize that Christians and religious people really took to this idea of human perfection as well in their own way. Christians began to ponder whether or not human beings could really become what Jesus actually was, a sinless, spotless human, incapable of defect. And they believed that kind of like secular mind cure adherence that Christians could unlock this reality using their mind. Now, during the Gilded Age, self-mastery became really popular. Science and technology caused people to start to invest in bettering their everyday lives. This is actually the beginning of the concept of self-help. Women were investing in sewing machines, Men started reading mechanics magazines. They were expanding their own understanding of technology. Gymnasiums were becoming a thing across many major cities, mostly just among the elite and wealthy for a while. But Americans wanted to condition their bodies in pursuit of better human conditioning as a whole. And they found pleasure and fulfillment in unearthing their potential. Now, we are also entering the time period where the electric light is invented. Edison patented the light in 1880. The telegraph is transforming communication. Uh, Conscious postulates, which is when Americans were introduced to germs and disease causation, was waking America up to the idea that forces we cannot see are affecting our everyday lives. When you put all this together, the desire to enhance human potential the desire to enhance everyday life and become aware of forces at work in the world and harness them, all roads lead to the next obvious step, harnessing the power of the mind. Enter the New Thought Movement. An inventor named Phineas Parkhurst Quimby is our founding father of the New Thought Movement. Phineas P. Quimby had tuberculosis, and was trying to cure himself using fresh air, which was kind of laughable to many in his time, whereas today many people recognize the need for fresh air and sunlight all the time. One day, while Quimby is riding outside in his carriage, his horse refuses to move. It balks. So he gets out of his carriage, and he runs beside his horse for a while. When he did this, he noticed there was some relief to his symptoms. This started him on a journey of trying to figure out how his mind played into his healing. Now, around the same time period as Quimby, there's a German physician named Franz Anton Mesmer. And he was making another metaphysical idea popular. Hypnosis. Does his name sound familiar? Mesmer? That's where we get the word mesmerized. In its early stages, hypnosis wasn't just a parlor trick. Many Americans were fascinated at the idea that mesmerism practices could bring healing in all sorts of areas in a person's life. This was new. Quimby was heavily interested in mesmerism research. He also studied things like uh, Sigmund Freud's talking cure research. Uh, For those of you who don't know, talking cure was a psychoanalytic treatment where Freud would ask a patient to divulge some of their issues in therapy. And the patient could not recall certain things. So Freud brought in a friend uh, named uh, Joseph Brewer who had the patient hypnotized. Well, 
The patient would open up about things they couldn't seem to remember when conscious, and after the session, the patient showed improvement. So all of these discoveries and research really spoke to Quimby, and he found himself more and more certain that healing really does come from having the spirit world and your mind in alignment. Over time, people would turn this into a strong connection between a person's thoughts and a person's health. Now, there's another weird religious offshoot that we have to touch up on here real quick as well, and that's Christian science, if you've ever heard of it. Christian science was founded by a woman named Mary Baker Eddy. Eddy was actually largely influenced by Phineas uh, Quimby, but she came to quite a different spin on the story of Jesus in Christianity. Eddy taught that Jesus came to save the world not through atonement as the Son of God, but as a model for teaching the mind to think correctly. Eddy believed Jesus saw the world as an illusion, where the material world is something that dupes people and deceives them, and that Christianity came to bring knowledge and power through re-education. Mary Baker Eddy actually believed that illness isn't real, and that if Christians could stop believing such mental misconceptions as sickness and death, they could unlock physical restoration by having the physical sort of enveloped into the metaphysical. Because the physical world is really just an illusion to her. Now, unlike Christian science, though, the New Thought Movement believed in a physical world, but believed that the mind determines the landscape of the physical world. So, literally, thoughts produce the reality you live in. So, you can see how the world is being shaped immensely by this fascination with the spiritual world. Even though the Enlightenment had taken place not too long before this, and America was obsessed with reason and naturalism, the 19th century really reintroduced a love and a belief in the spiritual world. But aside from Christian science, which was really a weird sidecar to Christianity that pretty much abandoned the central story of the gospel, most of the religious people really liked Phineas Quimby's ideas, and eventually the New Thought movement crept in and invaded the common Christian's theology. Now, remember that America was really exploring individualism as well. Big poets like Ralph Waldo Emerson had a really optimistic view of an individual's potential. Christians, not necessarily on purpose, started to adopt this thinking when they looked at salvation. See, with many Christians, especially um, Reformed Christians in America, salvation was an act by God, supernaturally imposed onto humanity by his divine will alone. But new thought looked at salvation as a means of drawing out an individual person's potential in this life. So in order to be in right standing with any higher power, you had to align your mind with that higher power. This also means that the New Thought Movement adherents believe humans actually share in God's ability to create. God created with his mind, and we do the same with ours. You can shape your own world by your thinking. 
Positive thoughts will produce healthy circumstances and negative thoughts will create unhealthy circumstances. Okay, now here's where things get really interesting. Because some of you listening are thinking, wait, isn't this all kind of true though? Like at first, all of this sounds kind of crazy and weird, but haven't even non-Christian scientists confirmed that a person's brain activity does have a major impact on human health? I mean, there are studies where people who recited positive affirmations to themselves over periods of time, they see positive results in their, in their mental health. The brain creates serotonin in response to positive emotions. Positive emotions impact the brain's prefrontal cortex. And when the prefrontal cortex is activated, there's an increase in activity and zeal. Uh, the increase in positivity establishes heightened mental reactions, such as creative thinking and uh, intellectual adaptability. And there's an increase in the brain's capacity to process information and all of this stuff, right? Our attention span is even increased. Well, none of this was confirmed back then, like it is today. And we will talk about how we should view this history at the end of the podcast, because I do think that's important. But I want you to understand this for right now. The New Thought Movement was, at the beginning, mostly concerned with healing and human health. American culture in general was really concerned with human health at this time anyway. During this era, in the 19th century, other health fads were popping up all over the place. Um, hydropathy, which was its water-based healing treatments. There was Grahamism, which, uh, yes, that's where we get the name uh, the Graham Cracker. Fascinating story about that guy too. He was a health nut who believed that a better diet would fix people's insatiable appetite for sex. <laughs> uh, homeopathy was starting up and the previously mentioned faith cure movement was around. So when new thought really came on the scene, it appeared to offer a Bible-based religious alternative to many of these other popular movements. I mean, at the same time, bloodletting for healing, that's still a thing. Uh, Mercury-laced medicine is around, arsenic tonics. I mean, these were all considered common cures still back then. So the New Thought Movement really gave hope to many religious people who frankly saw the dangerous and harmful effects of these other popular medical treatments. Well, after enough popularity a prophet of the New Thought Movement finally gave the idea some real wheels in society by writing the first book that was all about New Thought. His name was Warren Felt Evans, and the book was called The Mental Cure, published in 1869. Evans' book is where I have pulled some of this research, by the way. You can still find it and read it. It's available. The ideas in Evans' book eventually came to be called The Religion of Healthy-Mindedness. Now, we've covered some history on this topic. Let's shift a bit into the specific effects New Thought had in the Christian community and American church life. There were sort of two lines of thinking that developed as a result of New Thought in churches. There was Christian metaphysics and metaphysical Christianity. They sound the same, but they're different. The former focused a lot on just mind power, but the latter focused more on the mind and the body's relationship to Jesus' death and resurrection. Early Pentecostal Christians, for the most part at this time, really did not like this metaphysical movement, by the way. 
they saw America's obsession with new thought and mind power to be kind of cultic, demonic, satanic, and all around, well, secular. But as Pentecostals started focusing more and more on faith playing a role in the life of the Christian believer's health, they began to ride closer and closer to the new thought line. The first person in Christian history that we will focus on, the minister who really first began to blend the two ideas of new thought and faith healing together, that is where we go next. That minister's name is E.W. Kenyon. Dominating faith. That is what Essek William Kenyon called it. To be clear, E.W. Kenyon did not accept the New Thought Movement's ideas outright. He actually publicly contested them. But he did not contest them because he thought mankind's desire to unlock the power of the mind was foolish or incorrect. He contested the New Thought Movement because he felt that they were going about the idea of health and healing in all the wrong ways. See, Kenyon believed that God had set up universal laws, spiritual and physical, and the key to unlocking healing and material benefits was to understand how God operates within these laws. Kenyon was a pastor and radio evangelist who got his start as a young deacon in Amsterdam, New York. A deacon is a ministerial leader of some form or fashion in the church, in case you don't know. Kenyon tried a few things. Uh, he was an organ salesman for a while. He was an actor. And eventually he decided to study drama at Emerson College in Boston. While Kenyon was at the school, he came into contact with the New Thought Movement. Emerson College was home to big history characters like Ralph Waldo Treen, who we've mentioned earlier, uh, who was a well-known metaphysical teacher. And by 1893... Kenyon married a woman named Eva Sperling, who herself identified as agnostic and uh, had come out of a divorce prior to meeting Kenyon. And she was actually several years older than him. And the two of them became familiar with the Keswick Higher Life Movement. Now, real quick, if you don't know what that is, quickly. A revival broke out in Keswick, England in the 19th century. There began a distinct belief for some Christians, that in order for a person to go further after their conversion experience, they must receive the baptism in the Holy Spirit. Otherwise, they're always going to struggle with sin in their life. This movement used many terms for the baptism in the Holy Spirit. Uh, they called it uh, the second blessing. They called it um, entire sanctification. They called it the second touch. Uh, and over the years, church denominations began to argue about what the process of sanctification really looks like. People who eventually came to believe that the second blessing meant speaking in tongues and performing miracles, they became known as Pentecostals. And they felt that the higher life movement didn't go far enough in this kind of teaching. They believed that humans could completely overcome all sin and become sinless by growing spiritually in this life through the work of the Holy Spirit. And that's really how that movement came about. Now, not all Pentecostals today align with this thinking completely, even though they believe in spiritual gifts um, and things like that, just so some of you are aware. 
Now, this matters because Kenyon and his wife were influenced by this teaching as well, and he had already been influenced by the New Thought movement prior. So, after getting married, they spent nine years traveling as ministers of this new approach to a biblical life and preached faith healing. By 1900, Kenyon founded a school of ministry called Bethel Bible Institute in Massachusetts. About 14 years later, Kenyon's wife Eva died from a very long illness, which impacted his attitude towards faith and doubt in regards to the ability to be healed. Over the course of the sickness, Kenyon wondered how to approach the mental ascent of believing in wellness with the idea that God should have pulled through. So where was the issue? Did Kenyon fail because his mind was not aligned uh, with God in faith? Or did his wife pass away because it was her mind that was not aligned in faith? This challenged many people who were re-examining the idea of healing and miracles in the Bible while the New Thought movement was also so popular. People who identified with a denomination that became known as Reformed They agreed with the process of the Holy Spirit sanctifying a Christian beyond their conversion experience, but for the most part, they rejected the idea that the Holy Spirit endows people to live a life of performing miracles by unlocking powers of faith. So Pentecostals really went the opposite way and doubled down on the idea that the reason healing or prosperity isn't working in your life is because you are mentally still giving power to sickness and defeat in certain areas at this time. All right, back to Kenyon. Within the same year of his wife's death, Kenyon married another woman, a younger woman from Nova Scotia named Alice Whitney. Uh, By the way, there is no historical evidence that there was anything inappropriate about Kenyon and Alice's marriage prior. Kenyon and Alice had a son and a daughter, and in the early 1920s, they went across the country to California, and he held what some people would consider uh, intense revival meetings, where he would go from pulpit to pulpit in churches and in tents, and he would preach really fiery faith-based sermons on living for God with faith that unlocks spiritual doors that God is just waiting for you to open. He did this for a while until about 1931, where he moved up north more to Washington State, and there he started his radio program called Kenyon's Church of the Air. That is a catchy ring to it, huh? And here's where Kenyon's ministry really found its footing. Now, as we just looked at a moment ago, the higher life movement was still gaining steam in Christian circles, mostly in Europe, but a little bit in America. And while the New Thought movement had already gained steam in secular and in public circles, long before Kenyon, John Wesley's incredible revivalism from the First Great Awakening had already led many Christians to believe in the process of sanctification, which is where the Holy Spirit helps teach and instruct a Christian to live a life more like Christ as they grow up in their faith. The more you grow in your faith, the less likely you are inclined to want to sin. You become more and more set free from the need to sin, from the desires and distractions of sin. This kind of teaching really wasn't prominent at all before the First Great Awakening. Not like this, anyway. The thing that gets tricky is that for some Christians, 
specifically the kind we will call evangelicals. This process of sanctification started to look not like a process anymore, but like a specific moment where you have reached perfection. See, for Kenyon, it was not just sin that Jesus' blood paid for on the cross. Kenyon began to articulate a theology or a set of beliefs where Jesus paid for multiple blessings through the cross. And these blessings weren't just potentially attainable for Christians. They were, in his words, guaranteed for Christians who were baptized in the Holy Spirit and understood the laws and rules of faith. Again, here is where the development of ideas popular in the 19th century start to mix and coagulate with each other. Kenyon started to focus more and more on the power of the mind, the state of a person's spirit and universal laws to specifically show that Christians were already granted certain blessings if they could get their mind and their hearts aligned right. Kenyon and others, by the way, it wasn't just him, began to promulgate doctrine that described Christ's substitutionary atonement for sin as a legal transaction that preserved spiritual transactions of many kinds for the believer. All right, let me explain that because I think I just said a mouthful. Okay, your finances, your health, your success in the world and in this life, uh, your favor with people, your influence, your status, these are all things that are now blessed because the curse of sin is broken over you thanks to what Christ has done, according to Kenyon. Again, this is the first time, really, that these ideas are gaining mainstream attention in Christianity and in America at all. The doctrine goes kind of like this. God is spirit, and he created a spiritual universe. Kenyon doesn't say that the universe isn't physical, like the Christian scientists do. But he doesn't really care about the physical enough to explain it. He says the physical world is a shallow reflection of the pre-existing spiritual universe. And he says that even though, in his words, humans are clothed in flesh and bones, humans are primarily spirit. Now, pause for a second. Because I want you to understand that I'm not saying these things in a negative or in a positive light. I'm just telling you what happened. To be transparent, for those of you listening, I believe many of the things Kenyon taught throughout his ministerial career, they have some biblical basis and there's some truth in it. But I also believe Kenyon took some ideas way outside of the context of the biblical authors and outside of the context of what the first century Christians who followed Jesus taught. So as I wrap up this episode, I want to reflect back on some of the things that we covered, and I want to answer some potential questions that probably arose as you listened. First off, is it accurate to believe that the human mind needs to align with God in order to receive blessings from God? My answer? No, it's not accurate, but there's an element of truth to the concept that we can accept. All right, so firstly... You should know that the Bible does not separate humans 
into subcategories like we often do today. We often think about our body, our mind, and our spirit as though they are three totally different things that work independently yet in harmony with each other. But this is not an ancient Jewish idea. This is heavily Greek and is the result of Hellenization when Greece and Rome were conquering the known world. There was an intense synergy and harmony to the entire person in ancient Jewish literature. All right, we need to be careful when we try to separate them so much. Uh, Jesus says in Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven, he says, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. And Jesus here is quoting a verse from the Torah, the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 6, 5. Uh, but the verse in Deuteronomy says, Love the Lord your God with all your might, not mind. And there are small differences in all the synoptic gospels regarding the wording of Jesus and how they line up with this famous verse in Deuteronomy. But Jews often believed that the mind was tied to the heart, which makes the mind a synonym for things like moral strength or personal will. So Jews would understand the original command of loving God as a command to love God with your whole life, your whole person, meaning affection, devotion, monogamy, no worshiping other gods, mental attention, discipline. It doesn't mean the Jews thought that you could love God with your body and not your mind all the time. It doesn't mean that. There isn't a a separation of heart and mind in Jewish thought. Jesus was saying, you have to be exclusively devoted to the Lord. Um, Some people use Jesus's words here as a defense that the human person is made up of these distinct parts. But we need to be careful with that theology. Um, Hebrews 8.10 is another example. In that it says, um, I will put my law in their minds and write them on their hearts. Again, this is a special reference to the concept of the whole person. You cannot speak one way and live another Your whole person has to be devoted to God. You cannot align your mind with God outside of the power of your body. They are intrinsically linked. In the 18th and 19th century, many people in the West became fixated on the power of the mind to the point where they idolized it. And this still happens today in many moments that are uh, postmodern. Postmodernism says that the state of the mind has more value than the state of the body. Uh, Many people don't realize that postmodernism in many ways is the evolution of this fixation of the power of thought and a human's ability to tap into the metaphysical world with the human mind. Uh, Look at personhood theory. Look at queer theory. They state that the body has zero say in what makes up a person. Right? Biology has no voice in sexual orientation. Human cells have no societal value. The condition of the body is malleable and shapeable to whatever you want it to be, even to the point of abusing your body and scarring it or mutilating it. Anytime you try to separate the whole person, the mind from the body, you end up with dangerous beliefs that can skew way too far in the wrong direction. All right, one more important idea to address that I think really matters in the history of this movement that many people believe today. 
Are humans capable of achieving divine supernatural realities by becoming more focused, more efficient, more aligned with spiritual principles? And if so, is this what God wants? Surely the idea came to your head as you were listening to this episode. Was the movement something that God actually instigated, or is this all some mess that God had to go and clean up? (laughs) Um, I think the answer, the way to answer that question is to point out that the answer doesn't really matter. The intention with human potential is what matters. So let me explain that. Human beings when they were performing miracles in the Bible, in the New Testament, after Jesus' ministry and his ascension to heaven, they weren't performing miracles so that society could progress. Oh, progress. And, and you know, we could achieve massive cities and create harmonious societies and look at how awesome we are. God's spirit didn't radically heal and deliver people so people could become more awesome and full of themselves. No, God miraculously moved through his followers because he loved us and he wanted to set us free from the cursed consequences of a sinful world controlled by demonic forces for so long. Where the new thought movement airs most, and we'll get much more into this in the next episode, I promise, is that it was part of a larger movement where mankind was obsessed with what it could accomplish for itself. God doesn't divinely bless you just so you can be happy with your own conditions in this life. Uh, doesn't God doesn't want you to align your thoughts with his so that you can be healthier and wealthier. God isn't trying to awaken people so they can build bigger factories and make more money and have nicer cars and live a little longer. No, I'm not saying those are bad things either in and of themselves, but ultimately they are incredibly insignificant in the big picture. God moves miraculously because he loves people. It's all about his love for people, and he wants to reveal himself to the world. God doesn't care about you reaching some magical potential. God doesn't care about you living your best life now. God wants you to grow closer to him because that's what you were designed for, and that's where your true potential lies anyway. The moment you start chasing God's blessings instead of chasing God himself, you've completely missed it. Anyway, look, we will dive way deeper into that next episode as we look at where Kenyon's teaching went after his life. The New Thought Movement had a huge impact on the way business men and financial gurus started to run their companies, and the New Thought Movement had a major impact on black churches and black Christian communities as well, uh, as teachings and ministers who really pushed the name it and claim it mantra and wealth in the early 20th century. We will tackle all of that in the next episode, so don't miss it. Uh, I really hope you learned some cool insights from this episode. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast if you haven't already done that. And remember, you can send me theology and history questions. Just go to my website. It's joeybolognone.com. And I will eventually be doing an episode where I just answer questions asked by you guys, the listeners. So you can email me or you can send me a direct message on social media. Uh, And I've got all of this info in the show notes of the podcast, by the way. So check that out down below. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss an episode. Thank you guys so much. Um, I'll be bringing you 
the next episode of this mini-series of episodes on the New Thought Movement very soon. But until then, stay classy. Classy.